Turn with me again in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to finish um, the second half of this address to the church in Sardis that we affectionately coined Sleepy Sardis. I was thinking about this as, think about the spiritual condition of this church. I remember my dad telling me, this was way, way back, but um, he had an individual that every Sunday, um, and I'm sure this was a hardworking guy, but every Sunday he would would settle in as the message was about to start and he'd hold his arms, kind of scooch down in his chair and get really comfortable. And then he would just drift off to sleep. And uh, I'll never forget this dad took a hymn book over after he started preaching and just dropped it on the floor. And it made a loud sound, and this man got instantly charismatic, came up out of his chair, praising the Lord. All right, so last week we looked at this church in Sardis, and this was a church on life support. And we made several observations that are kind of hidden in this text here between the lines, if you will, of the issues and the sin that was present with this church body. And the Lord addresses, we looked at the issue of pride, hypocrisy, self-sufficiency, self-satisfaction, forgetfulness, laziness. And the indictment that we find against this church is Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This was a church that had been lulled into a a sense of false security, and they were asleep at the wheel. There was no imminent threat that they had that they were tracking on their radar how Satan was out to destroy them. There was no imminent threat from the culture around them, at least that they were aware of. But as we talked about last week, the flesh was looming for this church. And it brings us to point number three. We'll look at three and four um, today. Thank you, Jesse. Right on time. We'll uh, look at, at point number three and four as we finish up this letter to the church in Sardis. And it begins with the warning in verse three. And I, I want to go back to the end of verse two. I apologize, but there's some direction here that Christ gives to this church in Sardis that's important. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. The word wake up here is is really designed to um, jar them, to rattle them. Just imagine if you were the elder of that church reading this letter. Um, from the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, from the Lord, and you had to listen to that if that was read to our church. And you have the Lord Jesus saying to you, wake up. And the use of the Greek here, it implies that the watchful state is not a normal one for this church, and a change is needed before watching can come about. And literally, this means don't just be of watchful character, but become a watcher. Jesus is telling the church in Sardis that they need to become watchers. Not telling them to watch more TV, 
He's telling them to become watchers. Well, watchers of what? I remember many times growing up, my dad had creative ways of waking us up. And I'll never forget, he got my brother with ice water one time because um, he had already had the uh, the obligatory time to get up and uh, didn't hear it. And so he was jarred awake by a nice stream of ice water being poured on his on his head in bed. Sometimes we need to be jarred out of our stupor. And what Jesus is telling this church in Sardis is, is you are not what you think you are. You're not what you think you are. You have this picture in your minds of what your church is. And the reality does not measure up with your own perception of who you are. John Gill says on, on this verse, he says, be watchful with, uh, and there's a dual responsibility here that Gill points out that is good. He says, which may respect both ministers and members, or we could say it, elders and the congregation. The ministers of the gospel, whose business it is to watch over themselves, their conversation and doctrine, and watch every opportunity to preach it and the success of their ministry, that they do not grow careless or be drawn aside through frowns or flatteries, and over others as shepherds do, to know the state of their flock, as watchmen of cities to give the time of night and notice of approaching danger, and to see that the laws of Christ's house are put in execution. These are the responsibilities of the elders, to be watchful, to be on alert. And Gill rightfully uses a picture of a watchman on a tower to warn the city of incoming danger. But he, he goes on to say, and this may also respect the members of these churches who ought to be watchful and constant attenders on the word and ordinances and in the duty of prayer and should watch over themselves, their hearts, thoughts, affections, words, and actions against sin, Satan, and the world and false teachers. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. How do you know that you are not being taught false doctrine? How do you know? You have a responsibility to know if what you hear out of the pulpit does not align with scripture. You do that by being watchful, not going to sleep. In our, in our study through 2 Samuel, we are in the point, we, and thank you, Daniel, for this morning, we, we were, we're in the point where we're seeing the fallout of David's sin. A few chapters back, we looked at the account of David and Bathsheba, and we were talking about this the other night in our men's Bible study. Scripture gives the awful details of David's sin. Have you ever thought about why? Here is, as, as Scripture testifies of David, a man after God's own heart. That's an incredible statement and an incredible testimony that scripture makes about David. Why would God embarrass David with the details of his sin? And not only, and we, we talked about it last week, he takes David's sin and he puts it on the rooftop 
for all of Israel to see. Why? It's important to think about. Why does scripture give us the horrid details of David's sin? And then the consequences. His family is torn apart. Absolutely wrecked by his actions. Why? I'm, I'm convinced it is so that we will know our own capabilities and our own susceptibilities and that we would be watchful. Have you ever said in your own mind, and this is a rhetorical question, you don't have to answer this out loud, but have you ever said in your own mind, I would never do that? No, you can't. I would never do that. And we, we look at other believers and we think, wow, it's so sad that they have this great moral failing, but I would never do that. If a man after God's own heart can sin, and not just a little sin here, we're talking about blowing it, impacting his family for generations because of what he did. A man after God's own heart, how about us? So Jesus is telling the church in Sardis to be watchers. That's the call here. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, and, and the word transgression there denotes a moral failure. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a moral failure, you who are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Notice what it says. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What is scripture telling us? You who are spiritual, and the word spiritual there means pneuma, you who are born again, who have the spirit of God indwelling them, help the person that has had a moral failure and be careful lest you are tempted as well. What is, what is scripture telling us? What are we capable of? See, the perception of what we are outwardly does not align with who we really are. And the reality of it is, is any one of us, we talked about the definition of total depravity. Total depravity does not mean you are as bad as you could possibly be, but it means that sin has impacted every faculty and area of my life. And I am capable of great moral failure. If we know that, and it's important that we remind ourselves of this truth, if we know that, what then? We can be watchful. We can be on alert. First Peter 5, 6-8, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, literally be non-intoxicated in our minds. And he uses the, the word sober-minded, the picture of sobriety, to illustrate a very simple point. If you're drunk, what faculty do you have in terms of awareness, alertness? Now, I know none of you have ever been drunk, so you have no idea what it would be like. But needless to say, if you had been or ever were, the net result of being intoxicated is you're not alert. You hear the stories. People doing things that they never would have dreamed of doing because they were drunk. 
The picture here is is of spiritual intoxication. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful, that is, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Why should should we be aware? Because, number one, I'm quite capable of being tempted. Number two, I have an enemy who is actively engaged in seeing me fall. So when he says be vigilant, uh, it reminded me of, and I've never been there, but how many people have been to London before? Nicole, you've been there, haven't you? Oh, you went to other places in Europe. Nobody's been to London? Uh, te- eh, it's not the same. Just for like a day. Okay, did you ride the train? Okay, well, so well, yeah. well yes. Did you see a sign that said "Mind the Gap"? <laughs> yes, they tell you constantly if you're riding on those trains, "Mind the Gap." Does anybody know what "minding the gap" means? You don't want to fall between the train and the platform. Yes, you have to step from the platform into the train. There is a gap. That if you were to step in, you could hurt yourself, twist an ankle, wrench a knee, bad things could happen. So they have a state a saying that they constantly repeat, which is mind the gap. It's another word, a way of saying, watch your step. For those avid hikers in our group, when you're hiking, are you watching your step? Mark, you were hiking yesterday. Yeah. Do you? What do you want? Why are you watching your set? Uh, yesterday was because water was going on some of the rocks, and you get a. So you're not looking at birds. Yeah. You're watching where you're walking. In our neck of the woods, the baby copperheads are out this time of the year. So when you're out and about, you're watching your step. That's what he's talking about here, spiritually speaking, to be on our alert when we're walking, to mind where we are stepping, to be very deliberate. A good example of minding the gap, and some of you have probably heard of this, but one of my heroes of the faith is Jonathan Edwards, and Jonathan Edwards um, had what is called the 70 resolutions. Anybody ever read those? So the 70 resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, if you haven't taken the time to do it, it's it's worth reading. As an 18-year-old young man, Jonathan Edwards, at that point in his life, very well educated, moves from Connecticut down to New York City to take a church. And this church is a splinter. It's a It's a church split that he is taking over as pastor. And here is young Mr. Edwards at 18 years old. Let me just say that again. Jonathan Edwards pastoring a church at 18 years old. They don't make them like they used to. Bless you. So the interesting thing about Jonathan Edwards at 18. Now, the scripture scripture warns us about um immature young men being in positions of authority in the church. Why? Because they can be lifted up with pride. If you read his 70 resolutions, this is an 18-year-old young man, and he writes down, uh, and here's a couple of examples of them. He says, being sensible 
that I am, and this was his, this was not intended to be publicized. I don't think Edwards ever intended for us, the general public, to know his 70 resolutions. But this is in his, his, um, his journal. And he says, quote, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. That's an 18-year-old young man. Resolution 28, he says, resolve to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of them. Number 56, he says, in which he deals honestly with his sin, his corruptions, he writes, resolved never to give over nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruption, however unsuccessful I may be. Now, the reason I bring this up is here is Edwards at 18. This is Edwards before he was the great Jonathan Edwards. This is a man at 18 who resolved in his heart and in his life that he was going to watch his steps. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch. Literally keep yourself in check. End on the teaching or doctrine. Persist in this or continue in this, for by so doing you will save or spare both yourself and your hearers. We are to be watchers. Verse 2, it, it, it continues. It says, and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Here's a picture of life support. The idea here of strengthening what remains is the picture of propping up something that is failing. For example, you prop up your tomato vine because it is failing, right? It's the idea of giving an aging man a walking stick to help assist him as he walks. So how does this apply? Well, the picture here is being diligent in the ordinary. I shared a, an article with you written by a, a good friend of mine that, that ministers up in Wisconsin, and the article was about showing up. Some of you might remember that. It sounds like such a simple concept. Show up. Be there. Be faithful. Be diligent in the little things. Why? Well, because they matter. The idea here of shoring up or strengthening what remains is to take an account of our lives, to shore up the holes in the fence, if you will, to provide for spiritual maintenance. It's to take heed to ourselves. It's to be watchful of ourselves. What is your spiritual condition? Self-assess. Honestly, we like to think we're doing all right. How many times have you heard somebody say, me and the Lord are good? We have a special arrangement, the two of us. When we talk about strengthening what remains, it's making use of the ordinary means of grace. What do I mean by ordinary means of grace? Well, Question number 95 in Keach's Catechism says this in defining the ordinary means of grace. It's the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us 
the benefits of redemption. These are his ordinances, especially the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Why does scripture say, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together? Why does it say that? Because you're cutting yourself off from the ordinary means of grace. What do we mean by ordinary? What we're talking about is the consistent, diligent, line upon line, precept upon precept, teaching and preaching of God's word, prayer, the Lord's Supper, baptism for the new believer. And these are all, quote unquote, ordinary things that are so easily overlooked. But think about something for a second. Um, my oldest son, Cameron, happens to be, how tall are you now? Six nine. Six nine. <laughs> we did not feed Cameron a magic bean to get him to six foot nine, did we? No, he ate us out of house and home to get to this point. So how did how did he get to that stature? One meal at a time. How do we grow up in grace, in Christ? One meal at a time. God has ordained the ordinary means of the reading of his word, the teaching of it, the preaching of it, the sanctifying it with prayer as a means to grow us. So parents, when we're discouraged about the fact that it doesn't seem like we're making any progress with our kids, line upon line, precept upon precept, one meal at a time. The ordinary. The problem is, is we want something extraordinary, don't we? We want to see something like Saul on the road when the Lord stops traffic to convert him. But what happened to, um, I wanted to say Hophni, Hophni and Phineas, the, the, the two that offered strange fire. Why can I not think of their names? Help me out. Uh, Nahab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu. What did they do? They said, you know what? The Lord said very specifically, this is what you are to offer, but we're going to change it up. You know, the ordinary things are getting a little boring. We want a little excitement. So we're going to offer strange fire on God's altar. We know what happened. Be diligent in the ordinary. God uses ordinary means every single day. Do you, do you know how Charles Spurgeon was converted? At 15 years old, Charles Spurgeon, out and about, gets stuck in a snowstorm. So you know what happens? He steps inside a church to get out of the weather. He's 15 years old. In that church, the regular pastor is out. So we had this novice stand-in. And you know what he does for preaching? He just reads the Bible. And he reads Isaiah 45, 22, which says, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. God used that verse and the audible, ordinary, simple reading of his word to strike the heart of Charles Spurgeon. And he was converted as a 15-year-old in that church, listening to the ordinary reading of God's word. If we were to strengthen the things that remain, as the Lord is telling the church in Sardis here, it is to be faithful 
and to show up with the ordinary. Remember then, verse 3, what you have heard. What Remember then what you have received and heard. Well, what have we received? What is he talking about there? Finally, 2.3, sorry. What have we received? 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What is Paul telling the Corinthian church? Everything you have, you got from God. The admonition to the church in Sardis is to remember then what you received from God and what you have heard. Remembering denotes an action. We have to exercise our minds to remember things, don't we? We have to rehearse things because we are prone to forget. Um, do, you, do you guys remember that little board game or not? It wasn't even a board game. It was a card game called uh, Memory. And your kids where you flip over the card and how it trains your brain to remember where that object was that was flipped over. Well, the same thing applies to us spiritually. We need to remember what God has done for us and what we have received. Just a couple of reminders here. John 1, 16. From, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. What is grace? Grace is God giving to us what we do not deserve. And our minds should be fixed right here because we talk about our sin. And when we think about our sin and what we've done in the past, it comes back in full-fledged, technicolor, vivid, high def, whatever you want to call it. When you look back on your past life and you think about the sin that God saved you from, those things come flooding into your mind. And to dwell on that would not be good for us, would it? Why? Because you begin to be overwhelmed with guilt. But when we look at our sin in the context of God's grace, it keeps us grounded, it keeps us humble, and it keeps us grateful. How do we remember the fact that we are prone and very much able to be tempted if we are not aware of our sin? How, how, how do we keep a watch? You can't keep a watch when you think, I would never do that. We've received grace upon grace. We've received the atonement. Romans 5, 9 through 11. Since therefore now we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation or the atonement. This is uh, something that we've been studying on Friday nights, the impact of the atonement and what it means to us. We've received grace. We've received the atonement. We have received the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba or Father, Father. The Holy Spirit given to us as a gift. 
What is the giving of the Spirit to the children of God? Well, Paul reminds us in Ephesians, it is a down payment. It is God giving to us proof that we belong to him. I was having a conversation with an individual the other day, and the question came up, how do I know I'm saved? It's a good question. Is there any more important question? Is there a more important question than how do I know if I'm saved? Your answer to the question means everything. I was talking to a gentleman who gave a long list of all of the reasons he knows he's saved, and they're all things he has done, or all things that he's not doing. And absent from that entire list was the statement, the Spirit of God indwells me. I have been born again. Jesus said, to see or to understand the kingdom of God, you must be born again. The answer to the question of how do I know I'm saved is, does the Spirit of God indwell me? And he has given us his spirit if we are his children, and he calls it the spirit of adoption. It is the Holy Spirit to indwell us as they as the down payment on the purchase possession we read in Ephesians. He's also given us growth. Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Finally, brothers, whatever or what what well, it's ESV is whatever. And I went back to KGV mode for a second whatsoever. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there be any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What have we received? Everything that we have, and we have much, is all of God's grace. We are to remember that we are recipients of grace. He says, keep it and repent. Well, keep what? Well, the things that we have received. It means to engage in our sanctification. And the word keep there is the word tereo in the Greek. It means to keep, to guard, to watch, to, to protect. And I could not help but think of Griffey and one of his favorite pastimes this summer is catching baby frogs. And he'll come in my office with his hands like this with a baby frog in it, wanting to show dad his baby frog. And he's keeping it, he's guarding it and protecting it until he squashes it. Or puts it in his his big carry container with all of his baby frogs. But just thinking about what it is to keep, to guard, to protect, and hold these things close. Well, we guard what is important to us, don't we? The things that are important to us, we protect, we hold dear. He says, keep it, guard it, watch it, protect it. And then he says, repent. To repent is to change one's mind, to have our mind changed about sin. And it means an about face, a change of direction. And I remember vividly um, our former pastor, Chris Mills, talking about repentance. 
And he, he said something that always stick with me. He said, repentance in the Christian life is a lifestyle. It is not a one-time occurrence. We often think of repentance at our conversion as a one-time occurrence. No, repentance is a way of life for the believer. In Romans 12, 2, and I would ask you this question, how often must my mind be changed about sin and what I'm doing? Anybody know? Constantly. How often do does my mind need to be changed about my own actions and sin and how I am conforming with the will of God? The answer is it's constant. And in Romans 12, 2, Paul says, don't be conformed to this world or shaped to fit in the, the, the mold of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And my question to you is, how often must we do that? It's not a one-time deal. It's not one and done at conversion. Has your mind changed about yourself, your behavior, your actions? What is sin since you were saved? course. For the believer, there should be constant growth. So what do we do when, when we understand something in our lives is sin? What do we do? Well, I would never do that. No. If we, what? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the Christian life is not a one-time act of repentance. It is a lifestyle. And God commands them to repent. Verse 3, if you will not wake up, if you will not become watchers, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Does that sound familiar? I will come like a thief. Matthew Henry says this, Christ enforces his counsel with a dreadful threatening in case it should be despised. He says, I will come unto thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know the hour. Observe, when Christ leaves a people as to his gracious presence, he comes to them in judgment. And his judicial presence will be very dreadful to those who have sinned away his gracious presence. Secondly, his judicial approach to a dead declining people will be surprising. Their deadness will keep them in security. And as it procures an angry visit from Christ to them, it will prevent their discerning it and preparing for it. Such a visit from Christ will be to their loss. He will come as a thief to strip them of their remaining enjoyments and mercies, not by fraud, but in justice and righteousness, taking the forfeiture that they have made of all to him. There's a warning. So who is going to sleep the sleep of death here that Christ is warning in this church? We'll talk about it in just a second, but there. There is a clear mixture of people in this church body, just like there is in every church body. There are genuine believers, and there are pretenders. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come as a thief. In Luke 12, we're reminded to keep our shirt on. Yes, spiritually speaking. Luke 12, 35 says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. 
and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, we don't know the date of Christ's return, do we? There are some things that we do know. Number one, we know that he is coming back, right? We also know something else. Or we don't know something else, which is the day that we're going, what? To die. We could die today and be standing in the presence of God. He says, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Paul, Paul tells the, the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For all of you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Now, is Paul here prohibiting going to bed at night? No. I think Rush misunderstands that. He he continues, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk in the night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, for who who died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Reoccurring theme in scripture, Paul or Peter says very similar verbiage here in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says this, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Why? Because our minds need to be stirred up. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. What is he saying? There are people that are going to say, where's the Lord? He's promised to come. It's been well over 2,000 years. Where is he? He says, they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God 
and that by means of these, the world then existed, was deluged with water and perished. What is he saying? Between the time of God's creation, when he created water, and the time of the flood, even though that was many, many years, God had already planned for the water that he created to flood the earth. Even though it was a great period of time in between. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. By the way, toward you is beloved brethren. He says, the Lord is not, but the Lord is patient toward you, not willing or wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, what? Like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What does he say? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting expectantly for and hastening the coming of the day of God? He says we are to wait expectantly. What does an expectant mother know? It may not be today, but something's going to happen. <laughs> if a mother is expecting, we can say with all assurance that soon there will be what? a baby born. Peter, and Paul did it in the text I just read, says that you are to be watching and looking expectantly, just as as sure as you know that after nine months that baby is going to be born, you can be just as sure that Christ is coming back. And if you are sure that he is coming back, what does that mean for our lives? What does it mean? Do we live as if he's never coming back? Because that's how the world lives. Revelation 16, 15 says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This is symbolic, obviously. It doesn't mean we're never to take our clothes off and bathe. Don't take that literally. We are to bathe. It's talking about our spiritual clothes. Stay awake. Keep your garments on. The idea, and we see it in the picture of the Passover, don't we? Remember when Israel was to celebrate the Passover as they were leaving Egypt? What was their command? The command of God was they were to eat all of it, right? Why? Because you are hitting the road. The reminder of the Passover is that you are about to be on the Exodus. And it's the same for us. The promise is there. Our expectation should be that in due time, Christ will return. Are we ready? If you know you're having a baby in nine months, do you do any preparation? Yes. Number four, a promise blessing. And we'll move briefly through this. Uh, verses four through six, he says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. 
They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. What's he talking about here? People who have not soiled their garments. Is he referring to the quality and the cleanliness of their clothes? No, he's talking about their spiritual condition. You have some who are clean in the church. And, you know, it's, it's quite possible and very likely that this was a church comprised of a mixed multitude. In Exodus 12, 37 and 38, the scripture says, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramsey to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children, and a mixed multitude also went up with them, very much livestock, both flocks and herds. The word in the Hebrew for mixed multitude is, is interwoven cloth or fabric. So here's the picture. In the church, you have believers and unbelievers, and they're interwoven together. In Matthew 13, we have the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, and it's the same picture. Jesus tells his disciples uh, and uses the parable and reminds them that in the, in the sowing of the wheat, the enemy comes in and sows in tares in the wheat. Why? Why does he do that? Because he wants to choke out the wheat. In our body, in, in the body of Sardis, in every church family, there are those that are so hard to tell the difference in because they are interwoven. And the disciples, of course, asked the Lord, Lord, do you want us to go in and pull the weeds out? What does he say? Leave them alone. Wait for the time of the harvest. How do we deal with weeds in the church? What's that? Well, we let them grow. And if there's open sand, what happens? Give them the boot. Church discipline. Restore them with gentleness. If, if they are restorable. But we also have the admonition of John where he says they went out from us. Why? They were not of us. Now, that is not to say that everyone that leaves the church is an unbeliever. That's not what that's saying. But those who are not restored show themselves to be weeds. And the Lord removes them. The idea here of, of soiled means to smear with the dirt of pigs. It's like playing in the pig sty, if you will. And it's descriptive of those who have been washed. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul shows this contrast. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, 
you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. The faithful will walk in white. And in the original Greek here, it means radiant. It's not just the, the, the picture of white. You've seen those soap commercials uh, for laundry detergent and how they compare the dingy white to the really bright white. The picture here is absolutely luminescent, radiant, spotless. He says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. What is the white garment? What is that? It's the righteousness of Christ. Revelation 7. Verse 9, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude. And we'll get to Revelation 7 eventually, I promise. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, people, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Can you imagine being in that worship service? Then one of the elders addressed me saying, <clears throat> who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, and this is a very non-committal answer on John's part. Sir, you know, <laughs> you know the answer to the question. You're asking a rhetorical question. And the elder said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The picture here of those that conquer. And, and as we, we see every one of these letters, it's a reoccurring theme. It's another way of describing eternal life. It's another way of describing intimate fellowship with Christ. He said, they will walk with me in white garments. And he continues, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now, is this to tell us that we can lose our salvation? No, it's the opposite. It's telling me those that are dressed in white will never lose their salvation. For those that overcome, who will overcome? You want to know who will overcome? All that the Father giveth to me, I will lose none of them. And I will raise them up at the last day. Not one. Every true, genuine child of God will overcome, and not one will be lost. Matthew Henry says this regarding never being blotted out. He says, Christ has his book of life, a register and roll of all who shall inherit eternal life. The book of eternal election, the book of remembrance of all those who have lived to God and have kept up the life and power of godliness in evil times. Christ will not blot the names of his chosen and faithful ones out of this book of life. Men may be, listen to this carefully, men may be enrolled in the registers of the church as baptized, 
as making a profession, as having a name to live. And that name may come to be blotted out of the role when it appears that it was but a name, a name to live without spiritual life. Such often those, the very name before they die, they are left of God to blot out their own names by their gross and open wickedness. But the names of those that overcome shall never be blotted out. Christ will produce this book of life and confess the names of the faithful who stand there before God and all the angels. He will do this as their judge. When the book shall be opened, he will do this as their captain and head, leading them with triumph, triumphantly to heaven, presenting them to the Father. Behold me and the children that thou hast given me. How great will this honor and reward be? Think about that. The Father will confess the names of his people before, or the Lord Jesus will confess the names of his people before the Father and the angels. These are my children. This is my bride. You know what he's doing here? He's bragging. He is bragging. This is my wife. Look at her. I'm presenting my bride to my father, and I am bragging on her because she's so good. He's made her spotless. He has made her to be without blemish, and he will praise and magnify the work of his redemption by presenting us before the father and confessing our names as his bride. I can't even process that. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The question this morning for us is, are we listening? Are we awake? Are we dressed? As we close this morning, there's really two questions as I ponder this. Are you a weed hiding in the wheat? Are you a weed hiding in the wheat? Have you learned how to fit in so you look like you're alive? Remember, Nicodemus was a respected teacher in his culture, and he came to Jesus secretly by night, and Jesus cut him right off the pass. He said, Nicodemus, you're dead. You're a dead man. You must be born again. And Nicodemus didn't get it. He said, Lord, how I'm a grown man. How can I enter a second time into my mother's womb? Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And secondly, you will never enter it. The question regarding the, the sleepiness of this church is, is there genuine deadness there? Are there people there that are spiritually dead? That's why Jesus says, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. And the question for us this morning is, have we been born again of the Spirit of God? Does he indwell us? How do I know if he's in me? Well, we look for his, his fingerprints on our lives. What does the Holy Spirit do in our lives? He brings fruit. Secondly, are we a believer asleep at the wheel? 
has our spiritual life become dormant? And we've all been there. Let's not say that it can't happen. We, we think of David and the lack of assurance he must have had when he sinned with Bathsheba and then committed murder. If you went based on feeling, you could not possibly have concluded, I am a Christian. I am a man after God's own heart. But do we lack assurance of salvation because we have neglected the ordinary things, the ordinary graces, because we're chasing what we think is extraordinary? That's the temptation for us, isn't it? Forget about the ordinary so we can chase the extraordinary, the really shiny stuff. The command from Jesus is to wake up, to mind the gap, if you will, to repent, to remember, to be ready, because we will stand before him soon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for loving us enough to warn us. We're reminded that whom you love, you chasten. And we praise you that you do that. If we truly belong to you, you will not let us languish long in sin and shame your name. You will chasten us. You will discipline us and bring us to a state of repentance. Lord, I pray that if there are any among us that, Lord, are, are weeds hiding out among the wheat, Father, that, that might be self-deceived, thinking that they are in good standing with you. Father, I pray that you would challenge that notion that they can stand on their own two feet. Help them to see that they are dead in trespasses and sins without you and that they must be born again. Father, for the believers amongst us, I ask that you would help us to be faithful and diligent in the little things that we would show up that we would mind the gap, watch our step, and become people that are watchful. <laughs> Both, Lord, for the leadership of our church, and Father, for the congregation of this church, that we would hold each other accountable, that we would edify and build each other. We thank you for your grace, Lord, and we thank you for the fact that everything we have received is from your hand. We praise you for that this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.